thank Pastor for the privilege of the pulpit. Let's commit this time to the Lord. Father, we look to you alone. In all of our troubles, in all of our pressures of life and the difficulties that we face individually and as families and as a church, Lord, we look to you who are our strength, who are our salvation, the hope of our glory. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of us uh, living in a middle-class uh, lifestyle and having a middle-class uh, um, kind of um, earnings, it's kind of difficult for us to imagine how a, a family in poverty can live with USD $1 a day. It's not in our imag imagination uh, to be able to uh, grapple with how can you survive on such, uh, such amounts and support a family. In terms of our Christian faith as well, uh, it's sometimes difficult for us, even though our church, in our current context, we do face uh, some level of pressures, it's kind of difficult for us to imagine how Christian faith can survive under intense pressure or trials. I, had a, uh, I have a, um, a friend uh, from mainland China, he's actually a colleague of mine, and uh, I was astounded to find out that his uh, um, uncle uh, was uh, put into prison, uh, one of those Chinese labor camps, uh, for his faith for more than 30 years. It was, I think, uh, late 50s or 60s, maybe through the uh, Cultural Revolution, and, uh, you know, he was there for three decades. How can you, how can you endure such pressures uh, for your faith? And um, re more recently, in our, uh, you know, in our own lifetimes, we have uh, the problem of ISIS and uh, Christians who live in affected areas having to endure all sorts of uh, pressures and persecutions uh, for their faith. And we who are in our current context, sometimes it's uh, kind of difficult. How much uh, can faith endure under such pressures? I'm going to change my uh, slide a little bit. It's not... There was this, uh, some of you may know or have heard of uh, Viktor Frankl. He's an Austrian uh, psychiatrist who, uh, during World War II, uh, was, he was a Jew, so he was put into a, uh, Auschwitz, one of the uh, German concentration camps. And one of the things from his observations about prisoners, who, those who could survive, he found that to a large extent, the prisoner who had lost faith in his future, that has lost the meaning of life, uh, was those who more or less uh, did not survive long. In other words, the way a prisoner imagined his future affected his survival, his chances of survival or longevity. And he goes on to quote another uh, German philosopher. He says this way, those who have a why to live can bear with almost any how. Man was created for purpose and meaning. And once that meaning or purpose is lost, then the will to live and survive is also lost. We see this um, in the life of the Thessalonian church in Paul's time. 
Paul's, in Paul's time, when he went into Thessalonica, uh, you know, in response to the gospel preaching, um, you know, the, the opponents in the city who were opposed to the message of the gospel stirred up a riot against Paul and his companions, and uh, Paul had to flee that city. But the Thessalonian Christians themselves faced intense pressure for their faith. If you read through the first letter of Thessal Thessalonians, you find that they were they received the, the message of the gospel in the midst of severe suffering. And it's apparent that as time went by, the social pressures and the persecutions that they faced as a church escalated. And it is quite likely part of the reason why Paul writes the second letter to the uh, Thessalonians was because of this crisis that they faced in terms of escalating pressures. And Paul redirects their focus and their attention in the midst of their intense suffering to the return of Christ, their Lord and Savior. You see, when we face intense pressures, when we undergo persecutions, there are a number of things that go through our mind. Of course, to be frank, the, the need for justice. And, um, you know, if, if you are encountering unjust suffering, there is a cry for justice. Secondly, it is also a cry for God's relief and deliverance. And in the midst of that trial, Paul directs the hope and vision of the Thessalonian church to the return of Christ. And so in the midst of their cry for justice, Paul says, God will pay back those who are putting you in trouble. They are, they are, Paul is not saying take vengeance into your own hands, but to trust in God that he is just and will be able to bring justice to their cause. Their sense of relief, their hopes of deliverance also rest upon the return of Christ. In the last part of verse 7 there, this was happened when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, blazing fire, in blazing fire with his powerful angels. And so in the midst of persecution, Paul is redirecting the focus, the attention, the direction of the Thessalonian church to the return of Christ for their deliverance and relief. In terms of living in such anticipation of the Lord's return, we just want to cover three main or broad areas uh, that are part and parcel of the Christian life. Perseverance under trials, preparedness for Christ, and provisioning for good works. This is what uh, Paul writes to them in 2, Corinthians, uh, 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, verse 4. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. And so for Paul, Perseverance and faith go hand in hand together because the life of faith often produces persecutions and trials. But it begs the question, what brings about persecution? Were the Thessalonian Christians asking for trouble? Uh, did they go around causing trouble for their neighbors? Did they incite riots? Did they go down on the streets? Did they go around with the a big sign, uh, please persecute me. Uh, no, of course not. 
But because of their faith, they knew they were called to a distinctive lifestyle, new loyalties, new obedience to their God and the Lord Jesus Christ. They lived in a social context where religion, family, and commercial life were fully integrated. In the ancient Greco-Roman world, temple life, idol worship, giving honor to the gods and to the Roman emperor were part and parcel of how you kept community well-being, of how you did business, or how you live a respectable life within the community. But because of their faith, the Thessalonian Christians realized that they could no longer do that. But it was not just a withdrawal from, say, the temple festivals and the temple worship and the temple life of the city. It is the pressure from their neighbors who considered them outcasts and troublemakers because if you don't participate in giving homage to the idols, to the temples, then whatever befalls the city, the blame falls on you because you didn't follow the protocol. And uh, I, was, um, I mentioned this uh, last week at the third service. Uh, you know, those of you in factories, you would know this as well. Even in our modern-day uh, so-called westernized society, we have multinational MNCs or factories out here in Bayang Lepas, and uh, you will always find right that red shrine uh, within the the crowns of the, uh, um, the factory or the manufacturing plant. And uh, whenever you have trouble in the plant, uh, you know, the, the top executives from the MD downwards will make a beeline to that shrine to pay homage. Uh, so that, that is that life that they found in even greater measure in the time of the Thessalonians. But because of their faith, they stood out and they faced immense suffering and pressure and persecution because of that. Our faith is not a neutral faith. In polite company, we like to say that, okay, if you have your own faith and I have my own faith, then, you know, we, we can coexist. And, of course, we should try to um, live harmoniously uh, with other groups. But in the spiritual realm, faith is not neutral. Faith is a power struggle between the kingdom of God and the powers of this world. It brings upheaval and disruptions to family life, to the society's loyalty and values. And a lot of times, because in our, say, you know, middle-class church setting, not many of us are exposed to these spiritual realities, this struggle because of our faith. And of course, uh, a number of you have served in McCallum Street, and if you are in that ministry, you would know that spiritual struggle in the lives of the people uh, in those places. Those of us who serve in prison ministries, even if you are, you know, scientific Western-trained psychologists, you will often encounter situations in the prisons that science alone cannot explain. The sense of a, a, a presence, a evil manifestations that the Western scientific way cannot explain. And so there is a reality, uh, the spiritual realm, that is a struggle between our faith and the kingdom of God, darkness. 
But what gives us perseverance in the midst of such persecution? Remember the story of uh, Viktor Frankl, what he found out in the German prison camps. Those who survived or endured had a very strong sense of meaning and hope for a better future. The way we imagine our future as Christians affects to a large extent whether we can endure persecution. The why and the meaning of our faith in Christ gives us the hope to endure the present suffering. Paul puts it this way to the Thessalonians in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, being counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. He puts it that way. He reminds them of their identity, their calling, their purpose in God's kingdom. When we talk about the kingdom of God, it is this concept of the now and not yet. The now is that the kingdom have come through the coming of Christ, when he came on earth and died for our sins and raised on the third day, that kingdom has been established and we are subjects of that kingdom. But it is not yet fully computed. The, uh, the kingdom is not yet completed until Christ comes again. And so, as Christians, we are living in the in-between time, the now and not yet. What has started has not yet been completed in full glory. And we who are in the in-between time, we are living for that glory. We are living for that future glory when Christ comes again. And Paul reminds them that you are counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which now you are facing trials and suffering. Just taking in from... Uh, this passage here from uh, Hebrews chapter 10, same situation, the recipients of the letter of the Hebrews uh, went through similar suffering, and uh, this is what the author says to them, you suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the uh, confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. Do you think that the Christians then valued their families, their properties, what belonged to them? Yeah, they're they they flesh and blood people like us, right? So obviously, they, you know, they had property, they had families, they, they had family responsibilities. But they knew because of Christ, they had something better. Their joy, their values, their sense of identity and purpose rested on something much stronger and better than what they valued in earthly life. How much are we prepared to lose for the sake of Christ? I've got a young family uh, whom I treasure. I can't um, imagine living without them. Um, I've got a a career, a business, a small business started, uh, I mean, I've joined my classmate a number of years ago and it's uh, been an enjoyable um, experience and this has been an important part of my life. So um, I'm not a great fan of persecution, just to let you know. Um, there are much to lose. Um, 
but the brutal uh, reality is whatever we hold back from Christ, that, uh, you know, the Lord can have my, the tenth of my income, and, but the rest I need to protect. Whatever we say to the Lord, you can have others, but these few things, these few aspects of my life, that one I cannot let go. Then these become the things which will cause our perseverance to falter when persecutions threaten those things that are out of bounds to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, in power politics, um, sometimes in business dealings, whenever two opponents meet, the bare facts about power, power politics, uh, power plays, is that they identify your weakness, the things that you can't afford to lose, and then they take that away from you so that your resolve and your faith will falter. And so if my career and economic well-being is something that cannot be surrendered completely to the Lord Jesus Christ, then if persecutions threaten this economic well-being, I will compromise my faith. I will go where my economic well-being will not be so threatened. Um, in that time of Paul and the book of Revelation, uh, you know, this context about persecution and trials, at that time there was such a thing called the imperial cult uh, in the Roman world where, you know, faithful citizens of, you know, a city like Philippi or Thales, uh, Thessalonica, like what we're talking about in this letter, uh, you, you had to, um, in that sense, confess that Caesar is Lord. You know, if, if you're part of, if you want to be part of this, this citizen life, if you want to be part of our commercial world and be able to trade and to transact, then Christians at times, because, you know, their, their loyalties were a little bit suspect because, you know, they always claim that there's only one Lord and one God. And so um, many a time under persecution, uh, Christians were compelled to go be, uh, be before the uh, magistrate or the Roman authorities and make that confession uh, that Caesar is Lord. And then, of course, if you just confess that, that's all good, all is forgotten, all is forgiven, you can join back the uh, guild or commercial life or whatever it was. And there were a number of many Christians who refused to take that confession, right? Because how can you do it? Um, they, they found that if I say Caesar is Lord, that was, you know, a betrayal of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so many of them uh, did not take that vow and suffered for it, for sure. Some of them actually compromised and did, and, and because, you know, they, they reasoned that it's just words. What are words? So Caesar is Lord and let's, let's get on with the show. Uh, but there is, it caused a crisis of faith. We know from historical church records that uh, the church wrestled with this and, you know, they, they had to deal with the situations when, you know, those who had confessed that, uh, that Caesar was Lord, they were trying to come back to the church life. How do we deal with that? Um, you know, and they took it very seriously. Do we re-baptize them or something? Um, so it was a serious matter. But a lot of the Christians refused to take that oath and suffered greatly. Uh, for that. 
And so how much are we prepared to lose for the sake of Christ? We should pray that the church in Malaysia will continue to live under peace and be able to continue our weakness for sure. But we should also prepare spiritually, by faith, psychologically, emotionally, to surrender everything to the Lord Jesus Christ. Which brings us to the next area that we want to talk about this morning, which is preparedness uh, for Christ. How do we live in anticipation and preparedness for the Lord's return? In his first letter to the Thessalonians, um, Paul touched about how the day of the Lord will come. In the midst of suffering, he already touched on that in the first letter. In between these two letters, apparently some in the Thessalonian church got a little bit upset and worried because there were some wrong-headed teachings and false prophecies that kind of suggested to them that the day of the Lord had already arrived and they somehow had missed out on the day of the Lord. You understand, Paul's teaching to them is that once the day of the Lord comes, you will be saved, you will be delivered from all the uh, suffering and persecutions, and of course, God will bring judgment on the wicked. And so for some of the Thessalonians, they may have been worried to find that if the Lord had already come and we are still suffering, maybe we are not saved, right? We, maybe we are part of those who will suffer under God's judgment. And so Paul is concerned to correct their understanding, and so he writes this in uh, the, the first part of chapter 2, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by all these wrong teachings and prophecies asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Now, you see this type of um, speculation and concern, even from the early days of the Christian church, and that kind of uh, concern have come to also our modern, modern setting as well. And um, some of the key lessons to be learned is prepare for the Lord's coming. Don't predict, right? Um, the Lord Jesus Christ himself says that, uh, you know, no one knows the hour or the day uh, that he will return, right? But that has not stopped Christians from trying to uh, give us, uh, you know, a very accurate forecast on, you know, when the Lord might return. There have been many dates that have been proposed. They have come and gone. Um, there will still be uh, proposals that the Lord might come maybe next week, 3.45 p.m. on a certain date because of you know, some planet or stars have been aligned in some way. Uh, but that's not what we should be doing. Uh, we should be living in preparedness, not wild speculation or prediction. Take a, uh, maybe in the area of personal finance as an example of preparing, not predicting. If you try to predict how the stock market prices might go up or down on a day-to-day -day basis, you try to you know, you know, live your personal finance based on those kind of predictions, uh, you will either go crazy or you go bankrupt, probably both. And it's not, uh, it's not the way to live uh, you know, in a responsible way. But even though you can't predict you know, when the recession will come or how the stock market will react, uh, you live in preparedness, right? In terms of personal finance, you, you, you budget yourself, you have 
financial reserves so that you are prepared. If it's a downturn, if the job market goes sour, you have some form of reserves. You don't need to accurately predict whether the stock market will crash or when economic recession will come. You prepare on a day-to-day -day basis, on a week-to-week -week basis, on a month-to-month -month basis, how you spend, how you save, how you invest. It is like that in the Christian life, in preparing for the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul says that the, in, in the, the first letter to Thessalonians, that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. People will say peace and security, and suddenly there will be destruction, and the, Lord, the day of the Lord will be upon us. But he says, as Christians, you shouldn't be surprised by that. What he means is that on a day-to-day -day basis, Christians should be prepared to live in such a way that they anticipate the return of the Lord at any moment. That is our calling, to live in preparedness. And so the key is prepare, don't predict. And Paul leaves them some instructions um, in chapter 2 here. He says, stand firm, hold fast. You're always prepared. You're standing firm, you're holding fast to what has been taught, the gospel, um, to the Christian faith that Paul taught them. And he prays for them uh, towards the end of chapter 2 that you will be strengthened in every good deed and word. So that should be the focus, not wild speculations about the actual return date of the Lord Jesus Christ, but in doing things that the Lord has entrusted us to do. That is by far the most important thing to live in preparedness. Now, as other uh, preachers and, and uh, teachers have said, uh, we, we should live in such a way that, you know, we expect the Lord Jesus Christ to come back tomorrow. But we should plan and prepare such that, he, you know, he, he may not come for the next hundred years or so. So, it's that tension of planning ahead in the future, but yet living in that expectation and anticipation that the Lord may come any time. But if we are not to predict or pro give a predictive forecasting of when the Lord might return, there is a call to be discerning of the times. Not predicting doesn't mean that we are not prudent, that we are not discerning of what God might be doing in our context, in our world. It doesn't mean we shouldn't know how God will usher in that end times when the Lord will return back to save us and deliver us. Back to our personal uh, finance example, as I said, you, you cannot predict the, um, you know, the stock market, how it goes. You don't know when recession will come. But you can be discerning of economic you know, situations, of job market conditions, of you know, where this career or this job would take you, and you kind of plan out accordingly. If you discern, for example, that the property prices are overpriced, then you should be cautious in um, trying to uh, buy property or whatever it is. If you um, sense that the job market has uh, soured, uh, then you should take action to adjust your spending or your investments or whatever without actually predicting when that crash may come. Now, I'm just using an example. I'm not offering you personal finance uh, advice here, but I'm just using an example. So back to our Christian faith, it, it's this as well. We discern the times of how God will move to bring 
the end of days when the Lord will return. And they are, you know, we're not going to go through much details. That's beyond the scope of our uh, discussion this morning or reflection this morning. But Paul does want the uh, Thessalonian church to be discerning how God might bring or usher in that period of time just before uh, the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. And he kind of details that in chapter uh, 2 of the second letter of, to the Thessalonians. There will be a time of great rebellion and a rise of this personality called the son of lawlessness. And uh, various commentators and scholars have you know, used that term antichrist. And Paul says that that spirit of deception and the spirit of lawlessness is already at work. And so while the gospel is proceeding, there is this dark force, the spirit of lawlessness, that is also at work at the same time, all leading to the time when this son of lawlessness character will be manifested. However, Paul also says that God is sovereign, that God has put in place someone or some spiritual force that holds back this spirit of lawlessness, this evil that is uh, at work in the world as we speak. And so in the original Greek language, Paul uses a term that is a restrainer. Paul has put, uh, God has put in a restrainer to hold back the full extent of lawlessness uh, that this evil force is, is uh, uh, working in this world. Now, there have been uh, various speculations because Paul never actually gives us the identity of who this son of lawlessness and who this restrainer is. And in the past, scholars and commentators have said it could be you know, the Holy Spirit or the church working in the Holy Spirit. Likely that Paul is referring, according you know, to Jewish traditions like Daniel chapter 12, to an uh, archangel like Michael uh, representing the hosts of heaven, the heavenly angels, to restrain the forces of evil um, in our world. And so, as bad as things are, they actually could be worse because, you know, Paul says God is actually withholding or restraining the full extent of evil until such a time that the restraint is removed and then you read that there will be the climatic confrontation between the forces of darkness by this son of lawlessness against the Lord Jesus Christ, which will then usher in the day of the Lord. But the key point here is between the times that this ongoing rebellion to the final climatic battle between the forces of evil and the Lord Jesus Christ himself, that time, this time, our present time, is the time when God is holding back the full extent of evil. And you can read between the lines, as you read through the letters of Paul, that this gives the church an opportunity to continue the work of the gospel. Because once the full force of this spirit of lawlessness and deception is unleashed, then humans' hearts will likely not respond to the gospel anymore. It's a struggle. 
to be honest, for those of us in church, why did God allow His people to suffer? Uh, you know, uh, why? We, we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the forces of darkness, disease and suffering seem to be so strong. And Why does God allow that? I think part of that, I'm, you know, I'm not going to, this is a loaded theological question, I'm, I can't answer it. But I think part of the reason why is that God, because if, if it's total, um, no disease, no suffering, nothing, that is the day of the Lord. That, you know, that is describing the time when uh, the Lord Jesus Christ comes as Lord over heaven and earth. So we are not there yet. If we are describing that thing, that there shouldn't be sickness, uh, you know, there shouldn't be death and disease, we are describing that time and we are not there yet. But why does God allow us to suffer these things? I think part of the reason why is that God is leaving the church as a weakness, witness to his saving gospel. And he doesn't leave the church as a disaster-free zone, you understand. He, he allows, the, not that he wills it on us, but he allows the church, Christians like us, to be identified with the suffering and weakness of humanity, but yet empowered by the Holy Spirit to give life and hope in the places where God chooses to place us. So that we are not some elite bubble, right? We are, you know, uh, you know high priest in the sense that nothing can touch me, I'm beyond your suffering. No. He, a lot of times, God places His people in the worst of conditions, suffering the worst of things, but yet empowered by the Holy Spirit to talk about the love of the Lord Jesus Christ and the hope of glory that we have in Him. But once the restrainer is removed, then the end will come. But in considering that end, Christians should have confidence in what God has intended as the end. Actually, the day of the Lord should be for us a day of hope, of welcoming the Lord, not of fearful speculations and, you know, if left behind or whatever. It is a day of hope and joy for the people of God, knowing who wins in the end. Um, I'm a, you know, some of you may know I'm a football fan, and um, last season in the, you know, you know what happened in the Champions League, right? Um, uh, you know, my team, Liverpool. Uh, so there was a semi-final match against Barcelona, the, you know, obviously the richest and best team in the world. There's two legs to that match. First leg, Liverpool lost 3-0, and we thought it was a total disaster. How can you then overcome? So the second leg was, you know, uh, amazing, miraculous comeback, right? Liverpool overcame the greatest team in the world, 4-0. Uh, so that was exciting. Uh, but now if I watch back those matches, and if I watch back the first leg, and, and, you know, seeing Barcelona beat my team, scoring the goals, I can look at those goals with calm assurance, right? Because I know in the second leg, Liverpool is going to win 4-0. So, you know, 
know, it's okay. I mean, they can score all they want. I already know who wins. Paul is trying to tell the Christians, lift up your heads, know who is going to win. Even in the midst of what you are suffering, know who's going to win. Have that steady, firm assurance, even you are suffering from setbacks, even though the forces of evil are too strong for you, lift up your heads, look at who is going to win. And he says this in verse 8 of uh, chapter 2, the Lord Jesus Christ will overthrow this son of lawlessness by the breath of his mouth. And so, are we confident in God's sovereignty and timing and in the final victory of Christ? Our hopes are based on that, not on so much present circumstance. Obviously, God will change present circumstances in response to our press. There's no question. But the final victory will come when Christ comes again. Now, you might think that all this talk about end times and the son of lawlessness and antichrist, uh, you know, would be for Paul, you know, something so high and mighty without regard to, you know, everyday practicalities and that nothing can be further from the truth because then he goes on to tell the um, Thessalonians that, you know, you have to work hard, be diligent with your hands. You have to build up that reservoir of uh, good works and the ability to bless others. And one of the challenges that the Thessalonian church had was that, <clears throat> you know, a number of them, we don't know why, but perhaps they think that the end of the, you know, the day of the Lord is coming, so why should we work, right? Or, you know, they probably also uh, appointed themselves leaders who went about giving unsolicited advice, let's put it mildly, uh, to others and creating a lot of disruptions. And so you have, you know, uh, even in the midst of their suffering, those within the church who are creating internal problems and strife. They, you know, uh, refuse to work. They think that, you know, they have privileges over others. And so at that time, it's probably through that the, the church at that time shared a lot of community meals, communal meals together. But these guys were, you know, living off the hard work of other people. They didn't have to work after all, so they shared in the meals. And in the meantime, they, um, you know, uh, caused a lot of trouble. Uh, and Paul says, you know, warn those guys, you know, to work hard and not to trouble others. Uh, but for the rest of you, never tire of doing what is good. So Paul is very practical. Um, he says that the day of the Lord, he says the victory of Christ, but he also says now while you await and anticipate the Lord's day, the Lord's return, never tire of doing what is good. Be diligent to work hard. And at some point here, I just love the, the phrasing of Paul. Uh, he says Don't, they are not busy people, are not busy, they are busy bodies. And the original Greek is uh, also like that. It's a play on words. So, uh, you know, the, the point for us is be busy, be diligent uh, to do hard, honest work and don't be a busybody. Uh, and as I said, these self-appointed busybodies, they are going around uh, offering all sorts of unsolicited, uns unwarranted advice, unwelcome advice to people and causing a lot of dissension and not doing their share of the good work. And again, it is a lot based on community life at that time. Huh? Uh, you know, we share our meals together, we work hard to take care of one another, but clearly a few of them were trying to exploit the situation. So Paul says to them very clearly, you have to work diligently, uh, you have to work honorably, and the lesson for us is, yeah, 
work hard to be a blessing to your family, to the church community, to the community at large. Second point is to provision for the work of the gospel. Um, that is to say, build up a reservoir of resources for the work of the gospel. And this is where, uh, you know, founder John Wesley said it right along the lines of earn all you can, save all you can, and give all you can uh, for, the God, for the mission of the church. I just want to, you know, bring this, you know, attention to uh, what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, and he refers to the churches in uh, Macedonia, and the, the, the church in Thessalonians were part of that area. And he writes to the Corinthians this way, that the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches, in the midst of very severe trial, uh, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. So he's saying that even in the midst of severe trial, and they are not rich people, you understand, but they supported Paul in the work of the gospel, in the work of bringing the word of the law to cities around the Mediterranean, and out of their extreme poverty, they gave generously. Uh, they were able to provision for the work of the gospel. And we saw from earlier that we are in the in-between time where there is still opportunity we provision for the good work of the gospel. And so, just leave this with you uh, in terms of anticipate, living in anticipation of the Lord's return in terms of perseverance and preparedness and provisioning for good works. I want to leave you with this image. Um, in, in the old days, they had uh, this kind of arc structure, and they didn't obviously have cement or whatever, so it's just stones arranged in this arc structure. Uh, the thing that holds everything together is the keystone, that the one in the middle, the center. It, it holds the rest uh, together in that you take away the keystone, everything collapses. As we anticipate the Lord's return, we must be sure what is our keystone. Is it on the things of this world, family, status, whatever, or on the Lord Jesus Christ? If our keystone is on the Lord Jesus Christ, then all other things are held together by the keystone that is our faith and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if the keystone of the church is truly Christ, then the church itself is the keystone for the community that in the midst of evil and suffering, the weakness and the works of the church by the power of the Spirit holds together the community around us. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.